Well, good morning, guys. Happy New Year. You made it. Good job. Like, you made it. It's 2016. You actually crossed the line and have arrived. Well done. You guys don't seem very excited. Um, all right, we are heading over to Acts chapter 2. We are continuing our series. We began in the fall going through the book of Acts, and um, we're heading over to Acts chapter 2 to uh, continue digging in. So flip over there. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the floor around you. And uh, in one of our Bibles, you're going to be going to page 910. 910. Okay, we're going to Acts chapter 2, verses... 42 through 47. All right, let's read together, starting in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The they here, just for context, is the, all the brand new believers that had uh, been gathering around the preaching of the gospel in the early church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved." The Word of the Lord. All right, before we dig in, very, very important question. How many of you have made New Year's resolutions? Nobody that will admit it? Holy cow. One, all right, I see that hand. Uh, (laughs) Why don't we make New Year's resolutions? That's why, because we have failed so many times, right? How many times have we made resolutions and then just didn't carry them out, right? And so we start with all the good intentions, and, uh, and we don't quite make it, right? The most crowded time in the gym is always the first two weeks in January, right? It's like all of a sudden everything is packed, and, every, and you're like, I really hope you stay, right? Um, but, but we don't, right? And so here's the thing. I, I did a little research. Come to find out somebody somewhere really smart put together a list of the most common resolutions that are broken, which is the same list, by the way, as the most common resolutions. There's not two different lists. The most common resolutions and the most common resolutions that are broken. The first one, lose weight and get fit. No surprise there. Second one, quit smoking. I keep going down the list. Learn something new. <laughs> You're in bad shape if you can't <laughs> learn something new. That's rough. Eat healthier and diet. Get out of debt and save money. Spend more time with family. Travel to new places. Be less stressed. Volunteer more. Drink less. All right, so it's kind of a big joke. We read through these, and and you probably identify with some of those. You've probably made some of those resolutions. You have probably broken some of those resolutions. Uh, it's a joke because we, we make these resolutions and, and they just don't work. Now, here's the thing. I'm, I'm going to be upfront. I don't think resolutions are bad. I really don't. I'm, I'm not up here to slam resolutions and say we shouldn't make them. I think we need to know why we should make them and then what the right ones to make are. Okay? Uh, so we need to know why. Why are we motivated to, to make resolutions? The bottom line is it's because we know 
that we aren't where we want to be, right? That, that we're not, we have this idealized image of ourselves and we're not that. We're not where we want to be. We're not who we want to be. We're not doing the things we want to be doing, right? And so we, we have this urge, this need to say, I need to change, right? And you stop doing these things and start doing these things. The problem isn't with the resolution because that's a good desire. It's a good desire to want to be where you should be, right? It's a good desire to be who God created you to be, right? The problem is how we get there. Most resolutions are our self-salvation projects. Most resolutions are me saying, I'm going to fix my life. I'm going to be the solution to my problem, and I'm going to fix it by more resolve, more commitment, more effort, more. And so what ends up happening is is we make resolutions and we often fail. Now, here's the ironic part is sometimes we keep the resolutions, but we find that even when we keep the resolutions, it doesn't fix the real problem, right? I mean, somebody can lose weight and get in great shape and suddenly find out they're still not satisfied with life. Somebody can be the paragon of fitness and realize that their heart is still discontent. They're still lonely. They're still racked with insecurity, right? So it's not enough to say there are things we need to fix. We need to be looking at it and saying, how am I supposed to fix it, right? We're not what we're supposed to be. We're not what we could be. How are we supposed to get there? Here's the thing. In the month of January, we're going to be looking at, over the next five weeks, Um, Trailhead's core values, our church's core values. And those core values come out of this passage. Um, This is this, these few verses right here, these five verses have had a huge impact on my understanding of what the church should be, what the church can be, and honestly, what I should be expecting um, from an experience in the church. And so we talk about the core values uh, that drive the early church. and, And when we do, we're talking about key ways that we can grow. And, and that's where I think healthy resolutions can come in. Key ways that we can grow, not, not our self-salvation project where we're fixing ourselves, but ways that we can grow um, so that we move into freedom in key ways, right? And we understand that that freedom doesn't come from self-discipline. That freedom comes from God's work in us, right? Jesus said in uh, John chapter 8, when he was speaking to his believers, he said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So freedom is a byproduct of abiding in truth. Freedom is not the result of self-control. Freedom is not the result of me working harder and doing better. Freedom is not the result of me fixing myself. Freedom is the result of my abiding in truth, allowing truth, in other words, to reveal the lies I believe, to expose the ways that I'm deceiving myself about myself, about God, about my world, and then moving into truth as a result, right? And and so today, that's what we're going to be focusing on, is really that value of of truth. Um, So in the book of Acts, let me just explain the setting as we dig into uh, our passage. Um, Last time we touched this was in November. It's been a little bit of time. Uh, So what's happened is is in Acts chapter 1, 
Uh, in Acts chapter 2, when the church is born, we have the setting of the Passover in Jerusalem. Now, now during the Passover, you had, you had thousands of visitors coming into Jerusalem. It's this huge uh, festival, and, and you, got, you got visitors and vendors and looky-loos, and you got people coming to worship and people coming from, from the diaspora, which means they're, they're just Jews that are dispersed all over the area. So they, they come speaking different languages. They come speaking different dialects, and, 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 and the Spirit falls on the believers at the beginning of Acts 2, and they go out from the upper room actually speaking foreign languages, sharing and talking about the great works of God, talking about Jesus. Uh, but they're doing it in the language uh, of the hearers, not the language of the speaker. So it's miraculous, right? They're out there and they're, they're sharing this great news and, and everyone can hear them and understand them in their own language, which is miraculous. And, and people are hearing this. And, and, and on the first day, 3,000 people became believers. 3,000 people became followers of Jesus. It was radical. It was crazy. Now, here's the thing is when they became believers, suddenly they're in this new group and they're all that is, right? You, you can't say, okay, now I'm going to go home and join a church. There are no churches at home. <laughs> there are no other believers, not, not Christians. They weren't even called Christians yet. At this point, they had a crazy name. They were the followers of the way, right? You think Trailhead's a crazy name for a church. They were the way. And, and so, you know, they, they stayed. That's what ended up happening is most of them stayed in Jerusalem because that's where the new community of believers was. Think about the chaos, 3,000 people, right? Suddenly needing a place to sleep and to live and, and needing food to eat and their needs to be met, right? These guys came traveling with a limited budget and, and limited resources, and now they're staying, Right? And, and so people are having to open up their homes. They're going from house to house, sharing meals. They're, they're opening up their homes and letting people stay there. Now, now these are people that, that came from all these diverse areas. Right? People that are, that are some very affluent and used to getting their way, some, some that are in poverty and, and, and not, and, and, and different regions. So you have regional prejudices, right? You got different people coming together. They're all speaking slightly different dialects or even different languages, and they're coming together. This is a recipe for chaos. Can you imagine thousands of people that suddenly have to start sharing homes and sharing resources and, 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 and all of these things? Why didn't it blow up in chaos? Why didn't it implode in, into uh, infighting and, and jealousy? And, and that's what we'd expect, right? I mean, honestly, if we were to just take this room of people and suddenly say, you all have to live in one another's homes. You have to share food. You have to give up private space and private time, and people are going to get into your fridge and into your medicine cabinet. You're going to have to share your shower. You're going to be like, no, <laughs> I'm not in for that. Well, that suddenly, how, how, come it, how come it works so well? It's because what bound them together was stronger than what would drive them apart. That's what we call core values. The things that brought them together were stronger and more powerful than the things that would, that would separate them. What that means is, is there were things that were stronger than their selfish need for autonomy. Their selfish need for personal space. Their selfish need for personal advancement. Their selfish need for personal glory over against the glory of others, right? And, and, and what we find is in Acts 2.42, a description of those, of those needs, right? Uh, or excuse me, those things that bound them together, right? Take a look again at 2.42. And they devoted themselves. The verb there means continually. So there was this sense, devotion. These are not things that they gave lip service to. These are not things that they were mildly interested in. These were things they were devoted to. They were the values that drove them. In other words, 
Like, like these weren't things that they said, oh yeah, I value. They were things they really valued, right? They devoted themselves to these things. What? The apostles' teaching, exploration of truth, fellowship, the Greek word koinonia, which, which we get our, our English word um, community would flow from that, that idea of sharing of community and sharing of life, fellowship. Breaking of bread, which is a reference both to sharing meals, but also to worship. Uh, the Lord's Supper, communion, okay? They worshiped together. Uh, prayers, they were devoted to, to speaking to God, with God, with each other on behalf of one another. And then uh, down in verse uh, 46, and day by day they attended the temple together. So they didn't just pull into their own little private enclave and community. They were out in the temple. They were out in the workplace. They were out in culture on mission, right? Speaking the love of God and sharing the love of God. Those five core values drove the early church. And what's the result? At the, at the end of this passage, it says that um, as a result, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. I love that. <laughs> Glad and generous, full of contentment, full of joy, and then out of that joy, moving in generosity, right? So full that they freely gave, even though they were in a circumstance that was demanding and, and, and challenging and, and their personal rights were being infringed on and people were pushing into their personal space and, and, and all of this stuff, they were so full of what they had received that they moved in generosity, This passage is a description of what I want to experience. This passage is a description of what I want our church to experience. I want Trailhead Church. I'm not not saying I want to be communal. I'm not saying I want you to come live in my house. I'm not saying I want to come use your restroom. I am saying that I would love for us to be marked by this kind of joy and generosity. Brought together by a devotion to these core values to the point that what unites us is stronger than what would divide us, okay? And so we're going to take five weeks and we're going to look at each of these values and unpack them a little bit and talk about why they're important and talk about how they um, can ultimately help us move into the life that we want to have, right? A, A church that is driven by purpose and joy and personal lives that are defined by purpose and joy. So we're going to begin by looking at this first core value of truth. Right? They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, the teaching of the apostles. As the apostles opened up the Word of God and talked about how the truth of the Bible intersected real life. That's what they were doing. Right? They were opening it up and saying, here's, here's what God says, and here's how it intersects the reality of your life. Right? Your values, your choices, uh, who you are, who you think the world is. Um, we're going to turn on the light of truth. We're going to open this up and show you how it intersects real life. Now, we have to be really careful when we start talking about truth as a core value. And I understand this because we live in a culture that is highly distrustful of truth, right? As soon as you start talking about truth, like capital T, universal, absolute truth, people get really nervous around you. Because in our culture, that's often associated with with harshness, it's associated with, with condemnation, with rudeness, with people carrying picket signs and yelling mean and angry and ugly <laughs> things at people that are different from them, right? Our culture values lower T truth. You know what I mean by that? Like my truth and your truth, 
right? I have my truth, you have your truth, and, and my truth doesn't have to be your truth, and your truth doesn't have to be my truth. We can have different convictions about truth. We can believe different things, and, and, uh, and as a result, um, you know, there's really no judgment. There's no in, there's no out. We're both in. Like, you're in your circle, I'm in my circle, but we're all in the circle of tolerance, right? Relativism relegates all truth to secondary truth, personal truth. And so when you start talking about capital T truth, people get nervous. Now, the challenge is, I will throw this out there, the challenge is this, there's no way to talk about truth without being exclusive. There's no such thing as universally, universally in, in inclusive truth. There's really not. Right? You can say, oh, no, I, I, everybody, I accept everybody, and, and, and I think everybody should just get along. You're speaking from a position of truth, right? When you say to me, you shouldn't talk to somebody from a different religion and try to convert them. Well, you're impugning, you're, you're in putting your truth on me, right? You're saying, I'm inclusive, and you should be too. That's a truth claim. And suddenly, you've drawn a line, and I'm outside of the circle, right? There's no way not to have truth claims, There's no way not to draw a circle. That's my whole point. Relativism itself, this whole idea of relativism is this universally inclusive doctrine of of life is itself hypocritical and and, and short-sighted, right? Because as soon as you tell you to everybody, there's no difference between you, you should all just get along, you're discounting everything they believe that separates them from one another and saying, you need to stop believing what you believe, you need to believe what I believe. There's no way to make a truth claim without it being exclusive and drawing a line. We're simply trying to say our truth claims are defined for us, not by personal conviction, but by the Word of God. We come to this book, and this book carries a certain authority, and I'm going to explain why. But I understand if that makes you nervous, especially if you're not a follower of Christ, if you're somebody outside of the circle, and you're like, man, this is the stuff that makes me nervous, because there are churches out there that should make you nervous, right? And so I want to talk a little bit about the two camps that have kind of formed around around truth and our reaction to truth. Not to to characterize or to to say we're better, but actually to talk about the tension in which we live, because I believe uh, for us it's it's very challenging to embrace the best part of these two kinds of, of reactions and avoid the weakness. So I'm going to talk about truth churches. And those are churches that run to truth and define themselves by by um by the things that they declare to be true. And I'm going to talk about grace churches. And, and, and that's not my favorite terminology, um, but I think it works well for the differentiation. So let's talk a little bit about truth churches. What do I mean by a church that defines itself by truth? A truth church generally defines itself by reacting to a culture that has rejected truth. In other words, they look at the world around them and the relativism that rises up in our culture and it becomes very threatening to them. And so their response is to say, we believe in these truths. These truths define us. And so they focus on um, how important it is to know the truth and how important it is to walk, right? So it's a know and do paradigm where you need to know the right things and do the right things. And if you have a problem in your life, the solution is either to know more or do more generally, right? No more truth or do more to fix the problem, right? Um, and and um, by and large, these churches are known for their stance against the world. Now, here's the thing. There are some good things and bad things that come out of this posture, this posture of, of we're a, a truth church. First of all, these are churches that by and large teach the Bible. Like when you, you show up, they actually tell you to take out your Bible and, and, and they read it and they put a high value on the Word. That's a good thing. 
That's a good thing, right? They tend to value God's word over cultural trends, right? So when they're trying to formulate a position on something, their first impulse isn't to, to, to put a thermometer out in the world and say, where's culture on this topic, right? And, and we'll, we'll conform to culture. Their first impulse is to say, let's open up the Bible and find out what the Bible has to say. Who cares what culture says? Um, they're not the ones who define truth. Uh, this word is. They tend to have very high standards for knowledge and for behavior, right? They expect the people in their churches to know a lot, right? They have very high standards for what you should know, and they have very high standards generally for, for what you should do, right? They, 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 they mark things out very clearly. These are churches that like clear lines, and they like people to stay inside of them. The weaknesses of these churches, though, is, is they tend to see knowledge as depth. So the more knowledge you have, the more spiritual you are. These churches often mistake people who have, who have um, either religious training, seminary degrees and things like that, or um, ex, you know, clearly have extensive biblical knowledge. They tend to see those people as, as deeper, more spiritual. Right? They mistake um, uh, a lot of knowledge for spiritual depth. And so the, the implied thing there is that the more you know, the better you are. So the more you know, the, the more spiritual you are, the more, the more you know, the more accepted you are, the, the more you know, the more influence you should have. What ends up happening uh, inadvertently in these situations and in these churches, they tend to devalue grace. Grace is undeserved favor. Grace is love that is unprovoked and undeserved. Grace is, is, is um, counterintuitive, counterperformance, counter strong lines. It is love that is freely given. And so these churches tend to devalue it because they tend to value the people who are inside the lines, the people who know the right things and do the right things, the people that are inside the camp. They tend to mistrust outsiders. Right? People that are outside of their camp, outside of their circle, who think differently than them and maybe challenge the way they think, they see them as, as hostile, and they see them as somewhat dangerous. And as a result, they, they often um, put strong legalistic binds on the people inside the church. And what I mean by that is they communicate either overtly, like very clearly, or subversively, like very, very just more implied, they basically teach this, God accepts you because you measure up. God loves you more. He, he kind of hangs out with you. He likes hanging out with you more if you know these things. He enjoys your company more if you behave this way, right? It's a legalism that basically says God will accept you or love you if and when you know the right things and do the right things, right? Because there is this measuring stick that they use to, to measure each other. They assume God has the same measuring stick. And a lot of times what ends up happening is um, people in these churches, either subversively or overtly, will start teaching or understanding that they really are the only true church. They mistrust other churches. They mistrust other Christians. They, they're, they, oh, yeah, they're, they're kind of in the same stream, but they don't have it right. So um, these truth churches run after hard definitions and clear marks of orthodoxy. Um, in order to make it clear what is acceptable, what measures up, and, and what doesn't, they become very mistrustful and even fearful uh, when people step outside of those lines, um, even, if, even if people are starting to trying to start civil conversations, they often find that as a hostile intrusion because they don't like to be challenged. There are other churches, though, that, that are on the other side of the spectrum. And these aren't churches that are running to truth as much as their church is running away from it. They don't want clear and hard definitions of truth. 
They really just want um, kind of warm and open expressions of grace. We call these grace churches. They're, they're more about showing love than speaking truth. They're more about accepting the outsider than judging the outsider. It's all about having a wide open front door in which people can be embraced and loved. And, and there are some real strengths in these churches. Uh, they tend to be very accepting and affirming of outsiders. Instead of seeing outsiders as threats, they see them as, as, as people to be invited, right? They don't, they don't find people who think differently from them threatening or scary or hostile. They find them interesting, right? They're much more likely to sit down and have an open conversation with somebody who thinks very differently from them and maybe even opposes them, right? Because they don't need to judge them. They, don't, they have no reason to judge them. They're, they're there just to love them. They're not there to challenge their ideas. They're not there to, to counter it or to... to to in any way try to, inf- they're just there to, to listen. And so they tend to be accepting and affirming. These tend to often be very welcoming places that are weighed by, for people that are weighed down by shame and guilt. Sometimes when, when um, people have done bad things or suffered bad things, they find the truth churches very hostile and very difficult to break into because they can never measure up to that mold of what you're supposed to do or what you're supposed to know. But they come to these, these grace churches and they tend to find a, a nice warm embrace. That's, that's a healthy, good thing, right? Um, these churches tend to be more in tune with culture because they don't see the outside culture as threatening or competitive, or dangerous, they tend to be more in tune, just listening to their neighbors and knowing people who, who don't think like them. So they know the questions that their, their, their neighbors are asking. They know how to, to meet people on their own cultural ground because they're more in tune with the culture around them instead of becoming an isolated um, enclave of, 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 of Christian subculture. They're, they're more in tune with the broader culture. The weaknesses of these churches, though, they tend to see tolerance as depth. So they measure spiritual depth by how tolerant somebody is, how, how loving and accepting they are, right? If they love and accept everybody, obviously they, they're more spiritual. They're deeper, right? The more affirming you are of anyone, regardless of who they are, the better you are, the more spiritual you are. The result is that they often embrace uh, a systemic cowardice in which they're unwilling or unable to confront sin. They have a very difficult time calling people out and saying, what you're doing is offensive to God and what you're doing is destructive to the body and what you're doing is wrong for your family because those are truth claims. Those are exclusive claims. Those are confrontational claims that that often feel very counter to, to what they think they're supposed to be doing, which is just the warm, loving embrace of grace. And because they're unable to confront sin and unable to say this is wrong and hurtful, they devalue truth. What ends up happening often is the cultural trends become more important than God's Word. They really do uh, base their convictions more on what feels right and what feels good and, and personal conviction than an outside source like the Word of God, which might challenge them or make them uncomfortable. All right, here's, here's where I want to go with this. Again, I'm not trying to condemn other churches. I'm simply saying that that there is a tension here that is difficult to navigate. And there are strengths and there are weaknesses in both positions. And I would love to see us embrace the strengths and avoid the weaknesses. Now, here's a problem that I think both of these types of churches have. And it's this. They see truth as a bunch of ideas. They see truth as... as, um, um, 
I don't know, propositional statements of what is right and what is wrong or, 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 or just a bunch of ideas. And truth churches and truth people tend to run to those ideas and try to measure each other by those ideas. And grace people tend to run away from those ideas. Um, truth people, to try to measure up, study those ideas, know those ideas, try their best to, to obey those ideas. Grace people will consider the ideas, compare them, and end up obeying their own convictions. But all this changes when you realize that truth isn't a set of ideas. Truth is a person. Truth is a person. Truth isn't a list of rules. Truth isn't a a measuring stick by which we measure what is the right thing to think or the wrong thing to think or the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. Truth is a person, right? God reveals himself as truth. And what that means is that he is in his nature and in his character. Everything that is true and worthy and right and life-giving. Everything that is in line with who he is is true. And everything that misrepresents who he is and what he's created is a lie. And we find life in coming in line with truth. And we find death when we come in line with what isn't. Truth is not a set of ideas to agree with or to endorse or to embrace. It is a person. It is God, his character, his person, and and as a result, his words. Because when he speaks, he speaks from his character. And when he reveals himself and he talks about this is the created order and this is the way creation is supposed to be, he is speaking from that place of truth. He's simply saying, this is the way it is supposed to be. This is the way it operates best. This is what holiness actually is, which holiness is one of those scary words that we often associate with really high moral character. Holiness is just being like Jesus. Holiness is being the person you were created to be. Holiness is being able to walk into the fullness of life that God created you to experience because you're not getting in your own way. Your lies aren't hindering you. These areas of darkness aren't sapping your life. It's a person. God has revealed himself in his word and he's revealed himself most clearly in Jesus. As we saw in, in Advent series, last month we spent the month in John chapter 1 and, and, and looked at that idea that the word, the very thought, the very concept of God, Jesus, the expression of God, the perfect expression of God became flesh, right? We spent last uh, month looking at that. In fact, let me remind you of John 1.14. And the word, that is Jesus, the very thought and expression of God, the made manifest, the Word became flesh. Incarnation, right, actually took on flesh. The Word, God, became man and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. It was the place, the meeting place between God and man. He dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Not holding in perfect balance grace and truth. Not 50% grace and 50% truth. Full. He is the perfect expression of truth and he is the perfect expression of grace. He is the embodiment of truth and the perfect expression of grace. And what this tells us is this. You can't talk about truth without talking about grace. Because if you can't understand and articulate grace, you don't know truth. And it means you can't understand grace if you're not approaching it through the foundation of truth. Truth without grace isn't true. 
It has elements of truth to it, but it doesn't represent the character of God. And so it'll end up condemning us. It'll end up putting us on the treadmill of self-effort in which we are exhausting ourselves, trying to improve ourselves and fix ourselves in never-ending self-improvement projects that never end up right. And we end up weighing ourselves down with guilt and shame and brokenness. And it's because of that that Jesus looked at the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, and said to them, you guys are whitewashed tombs, speaking truth. (laughs) Not pleasant truth. But truth, you guys are tombs. You're full of rottenness on the inside, but on the outside, you're all painted white. You make yourself look so good in public. You you put on this moral air. You act like you have it all together. But inside, you know you're dying. You people that 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 are just pushing truth without ever understanding the nature of grace, you are misrepresenting God. On the flip side, if we just embrace grace without truth, it's all fluff and no reality. It's all hugs, but no redemption. It's all empty promises without actual deliverance. Grace is founded on truth. And truth, by the way, we often think of truth as harsh, but it's only harsh because we're not true. (laughs) Grace, truth is only harsh because we don't agree with it. We don't like what it shows us about ourselves. Truth is beautiful, right? And we know that because there are elements of truth that we run to. Right? If I tell you this is true, that you were created to be loved, we're like, yes, I was created to be loved. You were created to be treasured. Yes, I was created to be treasured. You were created to have a purposeful, meaningful life. Yes, I was created to have a purposeful, meaningful life. You were created to love others like you love yourself. What? You were created to lay down your life for others. Oh, wait a minute. You were created to be honest and have integrity, a unity of character throughout in which you had never have anything hidden. Oh, that's scary. I don't like that. You were created, right? There are elements of truth that were like, yes, we love those parts. There are elements of truth that we find very threatening and scary because they reveal things about ourselves we don't like to see. We don't like to admit. We don't know how to fix. We don't know what to do with them. Here's the thing. Grace is the only thing that allows us to see truth. If there were no grace, truth would be too harsh. It would be too blinding. It would be brutal. It would be a weight that simply crushed us, not only under God's condemnation, but self-condemnation. We can't even live up to our own standards, let alone God's. Grace is what creates the environment that allows us to step out of hiding, out of the bushes like Adam and Eve, right? And actually step out and say, okay, I am broken. I am ugly in my sin, but I'm loved and I'm accepted. Grace is extended on the foundation of truth. And if we don't understand the truth of the matter, we will misunderstand grace. Jesus is the good physician, right? He said, I came to heal the sick. Came to heal the sick. And those who are sick know they need a physician. He's called the good physician. Can you imagine if if physicians create a dichotomy of grace and truth like we often do in our spiritual lives, right? You have a physician sitting down across from you, and, and there are some like this. <laughs> and they'll be like, you have a rare incurable disease. You're going to die, which means you lose the game of life. I can do nothing for you. But if you pay me, I'll stay around. Pay me and I'll do things that look important and sound important. 
pay me and I'll, I'll make you maybe, I'll even tell you lies, make you feel good about yourself, but, but you have this rare incurable disease, you're going to die. Crushing weight, right? But grace isn't any better. You got a doctor shows up, puts the chart in front of you, and he's like, hey, take a look at this. What does this mean to you? Because it really doesn't matter what I think. It only matters what you think, right? How do you feel about this? I can tell you how I feel, but that's my truth. What does this mean to you? Well, it doesn't help either, right? Jesus is the good physician. He speaks the truth and he extends grace. He's going to make you really, really uncomfortable. He's going to hurt your feelings. He's going to say things you don't want to hear. He's going to show you things you don't want to see. He's going to show you not only how your bad behavior is bad, but how your good behavior is motivated by bad motives. He's going to show you how your best works are, in fact, filthy rags. That's a really bad day. When all the things you took pride in and thought made you great are, in fact, (laughs) monuments of shame. God's going to show you that stuff. But you know why he does it? He doesn't do it to condemn you. He does it to free you. Because until we see the lies we believe, we can't embrace the truth that sets us free. And that truth is that God loves us in spite of our sin. And he's not impressed with our best behavior. And he's not put off by our worst. He loves us where we are, as we are. And he loves us too much to leave us there. And as we simply humble ourselves and receive the truth, we also embrace the grace And that grace speaks to our heart in a way truth never could. That grace says, I love you. Not who you could be, not who you might be. I love you. And in fact, I will change you. Everything your self-improvement projects fail to do, I will do. Because I love you. Grace extended on the foundation of truth. Here's the thing. The physician looks at us and he says, you have an illness and it's called sin and it's terminal. You've committed cosmic treason against God, and in so doing, you have polluted your soul and made yourself unacceptable, and and you cannot enter into a holy place. You will be consumed and destroyed. But I don't look at you and reproach you, and instead, I identify with you so fully, I take your sickness on myself. And the great physician absorbs the illness. He takes the penalty of our cosmic treason. He dies in our place taking the penalty we deserve so that we don't have to enter into that death. We can instead enter into the life that he extends. We're no longer covered and marked by what we've done. We are covered and marked by what he's done. We're no longer defined by our lack of accomplishment. We are defined by how he has won where we have failed. It is grace extended on the foundation of truth. But there's no way to enter that grace unless you enter through truth. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he said there is an exclusive door into the grace of God. And it is through this very hard truth that you're broken, but I'm here to fix you. That you've rejected my glory and my uh, sovereignty and my uh, rule. But through me, you can once again be who you were created to be. See, this is, this is the gospel, the good news, right? The word gospel uh, is a word that means a, a joyful or good news proclamation. So when we talk about being a gospel church, what we're talking about is, is a church that is defined by this proclamation of truth and grace. 
that we have a God who hasn't abandoned us in our sin. He doesn't wink at our sin. He doesn't hide our sin. He doesn't deny our sin. He sees it. He exposes it, but he also cures it. Not by fixing our behavior, but by giving us new hearts. Not by demanding that we fix ourselves. Do you realize that the central call of the gospel is not to be better or work harder? The central call of the gospel is be loved. That's the central call of the gospel. Be loved. Stop trying to earn what he only gives freely. Stop trying to fix yourself, which is an act of pride, and rest instead on what he's done to fix you. The central call of the gospel is be loved. And in being loved, learn how to be loved and to love. And that will transform your behavior. That will absolutely revolutionize your moral compass. It will change who you are. It'll change how you act. It'll change how you live. But it'll change you from the inside out. It's a message of truth and grace. And I want us to be a church that are defined by that message that are undone by that grace and moving out in that generosity to love and impact others. So what I want you to hear this, guys, is when we're talking about valuing truth, we're, we're talking about valuing God. When we talk about growing in truth, we're talking about growing in our knowledge of and our experience of His love for us. And that's why we need to be studying His Word. That's why we need to be studying His Word. It said that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. In other words, the apostles' unpacking of the Word of God, saying this is where the Word of God intersects real life. This is where God challenges you. This is where God comforts you. This is where God corrects you. And that comes through His Word, right? It comes through His Word. The the apostles' doctrine, they were teaching it live. We have it in written form. They wrote it down. Here's the thing, you guys. If truth is going to be a core value of our church, we need to have some core practices that help us grow in it. Because there's a danger of things that we call core values becoming aspirational values. You understand the difference? An aspirational value is something that you aspire to value, but you don't really. It's like, I wish I would value this. I like to say I value this. My ideal image of myself, I value it. In in that dream world of my ideal image of myself, I value that. See, for something to genuinely become a core value, we have to have core practices that drive that value home, right? That's the kind of resolution that will, in fact, bring genuine life change. It's not a a resolution that I'm going to fix myself. It's a resolution that I'm going to bring myself in line with what will fix me, what will change me, and the Word of God will. We need to have practices that ultimately allow us to value what is truly valuable. So some practices that I think are going to help us experience growth in in truth this year. First of all, we're going to engage the gathering of the church, right? When they came together for the the teaching of the apostles, right? (laughs) They were doing that together. (laughs) It was the gathering of the church, right? Uh, It's incredibly important for us to come together for the gathering of the church. It is important for us to be here on Sundays, not so you can get your spiritual attaboy on your, your spiritual Christian progress report, right? Not so you can get a little merit badge on your chest that says, look at me, I'm the guy that's there. Every time the church doors are open, I'm there, right? As if somehow that makes you better. 
right? Why do we come to the gathering of the church? Not so we can get a merit badge, but so that we can be, have an encounter of truth, right? We sing truth. We preach truth. We speak truth to one another. We share truth in community, right? The idea of the spiritual life being this autonomous, spiritual, private thing is a very American idea that's foreign to the Bible. We are a corporate people. We are designed to come together to learn and to grow together. And so when we come together and we sing, what are we doing? We're not just uttering words. We are, we are letting the truth sink in and, and, and shape our hearts, right? So there's a, a continuity between what we think and what we feel and what we're experiencing as we, we utter praise and worship back to God, right? The deepest, most powerful worship experiences are ones in which we are both in our heads awed at the beauty and the transcendence of God, and in that moment also filled with a, that warmth that comes from knowing we're deeply loved. So when we sing, it is a confrontation of, of, of truth to our hearts, right? It's not artificial. It's not a show. Why do you, the book of Psalms is the largest book in, in the Bible, and the book of Psalms are worship songs, right? Why? Because we were designed not to simply be intellectual beings, We're designed to holistically embrace the truth, which includes uh, singing and and allowing the truth to sink in and shape us emotionally, right? But we also come together for the preaching of the Word, the opening up of the Bible, right? We do that because, because we believe that as we open the Bible, it opens us. As we look at this truth, this truth exposes us and helps us, encourages us, and, and challenges us, Right? Make it very clear that, that hopefully you're here and you're engaged and you're encouraged and you're challenged, and, and I hope you're even entertained. But the goal is not entertainment. It's growing in truth, which means growing in our love for God in response to His love for us. I think too many of us see attending church, coming to the gathering of the church is optional, Honestly. Uh, in our culture, if you go to church once a month, you're considered a regular churchgoer. If you go twice a month, you're a regular churchgoer. And I'm not saying that to condemn anybody. I'm not saying that to say, how many times do you come? I'm going to get a report card out. I'm just saying, man, we need to value the gathering. Right? Because when we get together, man, this changes us. When we open the Word of God, it, it encourages us. It challenges us. When we sing together, it impacts us. This is a practice that ultimately allows us to move more deeply into the value of truth. So in line with that, I'm going to encourage you not only to come to the gathering of the church, to value the gathering of the church, to come on Sundays, but more than that, prepare your heart for it. How do you prepare your heart to worship? I'm not saying that to condemn because I know a lot of times on Sundays, especially when the kids were little, I mean, it was just chaos, right? You got to get everybody dressed. You get this one dressed, that one's sitting in the toilet. You got to get that one out, get them changed and cleaned up. And by this time, he's over here. He's got his face covered in frosting. You got to clean him up, get everybody in the car. All of a sudden, everybody starts crying. You're in the fight that you didn't finish last night because the kids interrupted it. You show up and you sit down. You're suddenly supposed to worship, right? So I get it. I get that life can be challenging and the situations can be difficult, but, but do we try to intentionally prepare ourselves to worship? Do we come with an expectation knowing that when we open God's Word, it's an invitation to be impacted by truth? I'm going to encourage you to develop a habit of preparing your heart to worship. Do you come to church expectantly? 
not expecting to be entertained, because I'm sorry, I will disappoint you, but expecting to, to have an encounter with the truth. Do, do you come to church humbly, looking to be encouraged instead of critically looking to critique everything? Well, the music wasn't very good today, and oh man, what happened with that? And that was that, that lyric, man, they should have chose different songs, and, and man, Steve's illustrations are just off today. And you know what I'm saying? Like, a lot of times when we leave, we're like, hey, how was church? Oh man, it was great today. What we mean by that is, man, I was entertained. I went in totally distracted, and they kept my attention really high goals, right? No, I mean, that's missing the mark, right? Whether or not church is good shouldn't have anything to do with this entertainment value. Again, I'm not saying that's not important, but I am saying the truth is that we should be coming to be encouraged by truth, to be have an encounter with God. And that requires us to come expectantly. It requires us to come humbly. It, expects, it requires us to come hopefully, like actually hoping to, be, to hear something from God from His Word, to get something from the experience that ultimately shapes me, that allows me to experience God's love more deeply, appreciate it more fully, to be more amazed at His glory. So we need to come, and we need to come right. We need to come preparing our hearts, right, engaging the gathering, but we also need to engage God's Word independently, not just in the gathering, but individually. We need to have a regular pattern of reading the Bible, right? (laughs) This is God's word to you. And, and, and I could preach a whole sermon series on, on, on the people that have died and suffered so that you could have this word in your hands, in your language. Because this is an incredible privilege that many people over the ages have not had. Are you engaging it? Are you reading it? Um, a lot of people, especially this time of year, will do like, oh yeah, I'm gonna do the Read the Bible in a Year program. Okay, that's awesome. If you do it, great. If you finish it, you're like 1%, right? And what ends up happening a lot of times with that, the problem is that it becomes more quantity than quality. Like, I got to get my reading in. Like, you get two days behind, suddenly it feels like five hours worth of homework that's piled up. You get three or four days behind, you're like, all right, when's the next year start? Done with that. You know what I'm saying? Like, Like, instead of setting a quantity goal, let's set a quality goal. What does it look like for you to actually sit in the Word of God you're like, Steve, man, it's, it's difficult though, right? It's, it's hard. It's confusing. I'm easily distracted. Hey, what's that shiny thing, right? You're sitting down, you try to read the word, and all of a sudden, everything seems more interesting. Like, I think I'll organize my inbox. That's something I've never done, right? How do we deal with that? All right, when, when we do New Year's Eve, we have a tradition. We always do a puzzle. And here's the thing that this year, as we sat there and we did this puzzle, I realized you can't rush a puzzle. You just can't put it in high speed, right? Quantity over quality. You can't be like, all right, five minutes, 10 pieces, then I'm done for now, right? It doesn't work. You can try, but it doesn't work. What what happens with a puzzle? You have to sit with it, right? You have to look, you have to study the picture on the front of the box really carefully. You have to study each individual piece, right? So you're looking at the box, you're looking at one piece, one, not all of them, one. You're like, that's red. It's got a yellow corner, and it has two lines. Huh. So you look at the box. Lots of red. Lots of lines. All right, I put this over here. 
right? So you set it aside. Like an hour later, you're up here working, and you're like, I need a red piece with a yellow corner and two lines. I know where it is. You're like, yes, bam, I win, right? It's the victory dance of puzzle making, right? It's like, I did it, right? Here's the thing, you guys, when you're reading the Word of God, a lot of times it's like that. You got to sit in it. There's not going to be immediate, you know, it's like angels singing and lights turning on and your heart is melting in the presence of God. A lot of times it's you just sitting in it. Sometimes I get my most powerful moments of revelation days later. I'll be out riding my mountain bike. And I'm thinking about everything. I'm not even, I'm not even, and and then my brain will just come and I'll start thinking about that passage and, and bam, I'll see how that truth fits into this area of my life in a way I've never seen before. And it's encouraging or it's challenging. And I'm sitting there riding and I'm worshiping or I'm repenting and I'm like, oh my goodness, that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't sat there and looked at that piece. If I hadn't spent time considering the Word, it's incredibly vital that you are in the Word, that you read it, that you study it, that you sit in it. We put a bookmark in your bulletin. Um, It's really just designed to help you engage the Word of God, okay? On the front of it are like, I think, four simple questions. Um, And here's the thing. Let's say you decide, man, this week I'm sitting in Psalm 1. Remember, quality, not quantity. I'm going to sit in Psalm 1 this week. That gives you questions to ask, right? Pull out a journal, right? Write some things down, right? Actually study and and spend time and sit in it, right? Memorize Psalm 1, right? Let, Let it just sink in. Right? And then ask those questions. And, and as you do, the Spirit of God comes in with His enlightening work. It's not just the Word of God. It's the Spirit of God enlightening that truth to your soul. Right? There are areas you don't know. You don't know what you don't know until God shows you you don't know it. You're walking in darkness until God turns on the light. You don't know you need that until He shows you you need it. And then you're like, holy cow, how did I not know that? Get into it. Sit in it. Let the Spirit of God encourage you. Engage it. And as you do, here's the thing, you guys, you're also going to need to learn to submit to it. You need to be in the gathering to hear the Word of God. You need to read the Word of God to to know it. There's a lot of people who study. They study a lot. They study who God is and what He's like, and they love theology. But they lack a heart of submission. This is critical. It's critical. If we're going to value the truth, it's not enough to, to... Simply listen to what others have to say to it or even to read it on your own. We need to learn to submit to it. Now, submission's a bad word in our culture. It's a, a word that's dangerous because we often think of, of submission relationships as, as intrinsically degrading, like the person we submit to is somehow better than us. And that, of course, is foolishness because every human relationship teaches us the value of submission. If you love somebody, you know what it is to submit. Right? Because when your happiness is their happiness, you learn to submit your goals, your hopes, your purpose, your direction to them. It doesn't mean they have control over you. It doesn't mean you become less than you were created to be. It means you become more who you are because you find out there's a greater love and a lesser love. Right? So the greater love of my love for my family or my wife or even my church 
allows me to, to recognize that my love of success or my love of my hobbies or my love of my personal um, pursuits, those are lesser loves. And I submit those loves to the greater love. That, that doesn't make me less, it makes me more. That actually moves me into the freedom of learning to love and be loved. Submission is intrinsic to love. If truth is in fact a person to be loved, we have to learn how to submit to that person. In order to be loved and to love, to actually experience love, not just to perform, not just to measure up, not so that he will love us, but because he loves us. Submission isn't degrading, it's freeing. So when we come to the Word of God, we need to be asking very hard questions of ourselves. Where does this challenge me? Where does this redirect me? Where does this free me? Jesus said, I come to my own sheep and my own sheep know my voice. I love that because one, we're sheep, which means we're really dumb and we need a shepherd. That's kind of freeing, by the way. You don't have to have it all figured out. (laughs) Uh, You're not expected to be the shepherd. But it does mean that you're going to follow what you love. You're going to follow what you trust. If you don't trust the voice of Jesus, whose voice do you trust? Because you're going to follow somebody. You are a sheep. You're going to follow somebody or something to a pasture that you think is going to give you life. Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. And to know his voice means to trust it. They hear it and they follow it because they trust that he's going to lead them to the pasture that gives life. We submit not to perform. We submit because we love. We submit not to measure up. We submit because we trust his character. We recognize that when God puts a fence around our pasture, it's not to keep us out of life. It's not to protect us from better things. It's to keep us where there is life. When he lays down rails, and even if we disagree with him, even if we rankle with him, even if we're like, I don't like that. I don't like where that tells me to go or what it tells me to do. We trust that he is actually leading us to a better place because we trust his voice more than we trust our own. So we need to have a value of truth because truth will set us free. All right, next week, we're going to be digging into the next um, value, which is community, um, the fellowship. And I'm looking forward to it. I hope you join us. Um, For now, I'm going to put some questions up on the overhead to help just lead a time of reflection. I'm going to create some space for the Spirit of God um, to bring encouragement or conviction or whatever He would have you experience. So let's pray. Uh, We'll create some space, and then we're going to share communion together. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you are a God of truth, that you don't flinch. You don't pull back at showing us the reality of our brokenness, but you are also a God of grace, even as you reveal the darkness of our hearts the evilness of our motivations, the self-centeredness, the absolute self-commitment to personal glory as you open up and show us the fullness of the ugliness of our cosmic treason, you don't pull away from us. You don't reject us. You don't hate us. You love us. You love us enough to show us where we're wrong so we can be made right. You show us the lies we believe so we can believe the truth. You you show us the, the lies we're telling ourselves, even about you. You're humble enough to invite us back into a loving relationship, even as we misrepresent you. 
We thank you that you are a God of truth and of grace. Lord, free us into that truth. Let us be people marked by that grace. Guys, take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.